My name is Frank Prosnitz, and joining us, Daryl West from the Brookings Institute. Daryl West is a, an author, political scientist, political commentator. He has been at Brookings for a number of years, written a number of books. So I sent him an email the other day, and I said, uh, you know, what's the state of this democracy? You know, where, where are we going? How are you this morning, Daryl? Hey, Frank, how are you? Nice to be with you. Good to, good to have you uh, on this morning. So, so many things happening. This has probably been the most chaotic time I can remember in my lifetime in terms of um, our country. And it, it also seems that for the maybe the first time I can remember that it seems like our our democracy is, is on the ballot. Democracy versus autocracy, I think. I think that's right, uh, sadly. Uh, it, I agree wholeheartedly with your comment that it is a very chaotic time, lots of uncertainty, uh, lots of ominous uh, developments. I mean, we've seen uh, changes in voting rights. Uh, they're going to make it more difficult for uh, some people to vote in uh, key states. So that uh, clearly is problematic. The whole social media environment has become really toxic. And with Elon Musk's uh, apparent uh, purchase of Twitter, uh, that situation actually could get a lot worse. Polarization is uh, very high. Republicans are continuing to spread uh, big lies about uh, the 2020 election and voter fraud there. So I think people who study American democracy should be very worried right now at all these things that are taking place. If the predictions are are accurate, and, and I think the jury is still out until the last minute, of course, that Republicans uh, win over the House again, and then potentially win the Senate as well. And then we have Republicans who are out there saying that they're going to Im- impeach President Biden. What prevents that from happening? And if so, what are the consequences of that? Is that pretty much then the the end of democracy? Because every time around where, where we change power, we'll just have another impeachment? Well, there are uh, certainly... Uh congressional Republicans who are talking about impeachment. And if you remember how the process works, it only takes a majority vote in the House of Representatives to impeach someone, but then it goes to the Senate for a trial and two thirds, uh, which is 67 senators, then have to approve. So even in a worst case scenario where the House is controlled by Republicans and they impeach uh, President Biden, when that trial moves to the Senate, I think it's highly unlikely that there would be 67 votes to actually remove him. So uh, Biden at that point would end up in the same situation as Trump, which is impeached but not removed from office. But you're right in terms of the broader uh, message. You know, if we have two consecutive uh, presidents, one from each party who ends up getting impeached, that's a very bad sign for democracy. It's a sign of polarization run completely amok and would be very worrisome just in terms of the future of democracy. How do we get out of this? I mean, I, and I'm not sure I, I see anything clearly that it just seems to me that I think it's really important that we have two voices or at least two voices, if not more, where we have dialogue over these issues and we all pretty much should have the same kind of goals for for this country, and and we may have different ways of getting there, and it's great to debate those things and then come up with some kind of a solution. We're that's not happening at all. We're getting entrenched in positions that have little to do with the real issues, and when we see issues that come up, we don't see them as issues. We see them as as either political fodder or something that we we've got to try and 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 defend against. How do we get out of this thing? I mean, that is the. Uh, uh, the, the big question uh, facing the country right now. And I think if you look historically, I mean, 
obviously this is not the first time our country has been highly uh, polarized in the 1790s, the 1890s, and then starting in the 1990s and basically for the last three decades, uh, we've been in a period of very high polarization. If you look at some of the earlier periods, what often happened to reduce the polarization was some big external event that it never completely united the country, but it basically shifted enough people who were in the middle uh, to basically reduce polarization to a level that it became manageable. So in the 1930s, it was the Great Depression that uh, brought the uh, country together. Uh, in earlier periods, uh, sometimes it was a war uh, and kind of a common external threat uh, that brought people together. So what I'm watching is really the Ukraine uh, uh, war and the Russian invasion of Ukraine to see if eventually that is going to shift enough people to kind of break down the tribalism, uh, the polarization, and the hyper-partisanship. Now, I would say right now we have not seen that, uh, but you know, in the face of Russian atrocities, uh, some of the uh, terrible war crimes that are taking place there, eventually that might start to break through. And of course, Trump has had very favorable and sympathetic comments to Vladimir Putin. It's hard to imagine uh, that position is going to hold up very well for Trump, uh, that uh, even in a situation of high polarization, uh, Americans basically hate uh, Putin, uh, view him as the instigator of this war and certainly responsible for the war crimes. Eventually, I do think that is going to catch up with Trump and some of the Republicans uh, who have supported him on that. I found it amusing to listen to Rand Paul you know, saying how, in fact, Ukraine had once been part of this, the uh, the Soviet Union. And uh, so I guess that means that uh, in Rand Paul's mind that America ought to be turned back to um, England. Right? Yeah, his position is uh, certainly very uh, bizarre that because Ukraine uh, used to be part of the Soviet Union, that Russia can just invade what was a peaceful country, a democratic country, and uh, bear no uh, consequences. And if you look at American public opinion, like people are definitely not buying uh, that argument. Everybody views Russia as the aggressor, uh, thinks what they've done is completely uh, unfair. And of course, as the war crimes and atrocities are coming to light, uh, are moving in a very negative direction. And so it really puts Republicans in an interesting position because on the one hand, traditionally, they have been very hostile to uh, Russia and hostile to uh, the Soviet Union before that. Most Republicans are pretty uh, hawkish on uh, national security. So the outlier in all this is actually Donald Trump. Uh, like he has, you know, always been uh, more positive towards uh, Putin and Russia than people within his own party and certainly American public opinion in uh, general. And so I think, you know, people like uh, Rand Paul and Trump, uh, people who've been uh, soft on this Russian invasion, I don't think that position is going to hold up uh, very well because we're already seeing reports of uh, all these uh, innocent civilians who are just getting uh, massacred, uh, the mass graves. Uh, there's starting to be reports of the systematic use of rape as an instrument of military aggression on the part of the uh, Russians. So these stories are going to come out uh, over a time, and I think it's just going to push the American public against Trump and against uh, uh, Russia, uh, and therefore uh, then uh, start to bring the country a little bit more together. I wanted to shift just a little bit to the January 6th Commission and its work and whether or not its findings will have any impact at all on voters um, other than those who are already engaged in this, but those who are 
independents who, who, for some reason or another, thought this was some kind of a fantasy, the, uh, this assault on the, on the Capitol. And, and where do you think that goes? And then even, even more so than that, when we have uh, Congress people and we have other, others who were within that Trump circle who are refusing to testify, are re- refusing to even respect a subpoena to come and te- testify, what does that say to that whole process? Does that, does that somehow unravel? That means that no member of Congress has responsibility to at least appear and, and go before uh, a body that's, that's looking into any particular issue? Not only this one, any issue. Well, it, it certainly uh, raises great questions just in terms of checks and balances, the ability of our legal system to investigation uh, to, to investigate uh, this uh, type of uh, violence. Certainly some of the information that has come out in terms of the text messages that uh, various uh, Republican members of Congress were sending uh, Mark uh, Meadows, who uh, then was uh, Trump's uh, chief of staff, certainly uh, seemed very incriminating. I think the interesting thing to watch there will be in June, uh, that commission is going to hold televised hearings where they are going to basically publicize the text messages, the documents they've encountered, uh, the testimony of the people who have uh, come forward, and they're going to be uh, witnesses who basically are talking about uh, what transpired uh, there. And I would say so far, that commission has not broken through into the American psyche in the way that one would expect, given the magnitude of some of the misdeeds that already have been uncovered. The question is, once uh, that commission moves to televised hearings, will that make a difference? Like if you see a human face behind the document, if you see people starting to testify about what literally seems uh, to have been a coup d'etat attempt on the uh, part of Trump. Yeah, he literally was trying to overturn the uh, electoral will of the American uh, public at that point, uh, obviously failed. But the fact that so many people seem to have been involved with that, uh, they were exchanging uh, messages uh, with uh, people in the Trump uh, White House is uh, very discouraging just in terms of the future of the country. So am, am I wrong in, in characterizing this as really democracy on trial? That whether or not it, it how people, how this nation responds to these televised hearings and this, this whole coup attempt, um, how in fact, uh, how in fact, if we, if we respond with indifference, uh, has not democracy lost? I think that will be the case. Uh, if people are indifferent to a clear documentary trail of misdeeds, abuses of the democratic uh, process, and attempts to subvert the rule of law, uh, that will obviously be a very bad sign for the future of the uh, country. I, I do think democracy is on trial here. And I understand people's concerns about all of the other issues that are on the agenda, you know, inflation, uh, the war, border issues, uh, and uh, kind of the aftermath of COVID. But democracy is so fundamental that if we don't have democracy, the way that we address future issues of economic policy and foreign policy are going to be completely subverted. I mean, Americans, I think, take democracy for granted. We've had it for more than 200 years, and people just assume that we're going to continue to have it, uh, but they should realize that is not necessarily the case. Uh, We've actually seen in other countries, democracy is surprisingly uh, easy to undermine. 
Uh, sometimes it happens slowly. Sometimes it can happen uh, pretty fast. But uh, all of these uh, issues that you're uh, talking about uh, certainly are very worrisome. And people should pay attention to what's going on. In France, where we saw recently saw the election of Macron, and it was a, you know, by 16, 18 points, people look at that as a big victory, but it's not really because, in fact, is, is not the far right creeping up rapidly where they're getting now over 40 percent of the vote when in, when in the past it was uh, down in single digits? Yeah, the fact that far right candidate got 42 percent of the uh, vote is another sign that democracy is on trial, not just in the United States, but in various uh, European countries, as, as well as other places around the uh, world. So uh, I was certainly happy that Macron was reelected, uh, but the fact that Le Pen got 42% of the vote, taking very extreme uh, stances, uh, basically wanting to uh, uh, remove uh, France from uh, NATO, uh, have it develop its own, uh, military uh, capabilities. I mean, that would be devastating if France exited either the European Union uh, and or uh, NATO. I mean, that would basically destroy the whole concept of uh, Europe as a united uh, force. And, you know, we've seen in the Ukraine war how important it has been for the European countries to stay together, which with a couple of exceptions has uh, pretty much uh, been the case. Uh, they're worried about Russia, uh, Russian military aggression. Uh, possible invasions of other uh, countries. But if you start to see divisions within Europe, you know, the geopolitics changes dramatically. Uh, and I think Putin was actually counting on a divided uh, Europe that he assumed he could go in. He knew America would complain. He knew England would complain. But I think he was assuming uh, some other countries uh, either would stay quiet or would be very mild in their response. I think he was genuinely shocked when uh, so many European leaders uh, not only condemned uh, what he did, but now are sending uh, serious military aid to uh, Ukraine. But all these things are interrelated, the problems of American democracy here at home, and then some of the challenges uh, that we see with ultra-nationalist candidates doing surprisingly well in some other uh, countries. Uh, those are uh, things that can feed on one another. Americans, I think, are first on their agenda, my bet would be uh, their pocketbook and inflation being huge when it comes to these uh, to these midterms and what, what is perceived as, but I don't think is correct, the failure of this Democratic majority to get anything done. Infrastructure was something that avoided, was never accomplished in the past, but now in a, in a large way. And I don't know how much people are seeing it out in their communities, but how do we how do we get back to resolve these issues? And I guess you have to do that with a maybe a more visionary Congress that that takes a look and sees that their their role is not necessarily a political position, but of resolving issues. Well, certainly the job of Congress is to address problems and try and make a progress on them. And you're right, the infrastructure bill is something several recent presidents have attempted and failed, and Biden actually got it done. Uh, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. But the surprising thing is, like, I barely hear Democrats and or President Biden himself talking about the infrastructure bill uh, anymore. Like, occasionally there are mentions to it, but that what should have been a huge political success has basically become a non-issue. And all these other problems have popped up, uh, inflation, uh, the border and other uh, types of uh, issues. And I feel like Democrats have lost sight of the ball. They've uh, 
uh, missed the uh, political messaging that they should be doing over uh, the infrastructure bill. They should be uh, trumpeting uh, the success in getting something done that uh, several past presidents have uh, wanted, but their message is all over the place and not being very effective. Meanwhile, Republicans are actually running a very good communications message, basically complaining about the various things Biden is doing, uh, focusing on the pocketbook uh, issue of inflation, uh, raising various cultural uh, issues in terms of what's going on in the schools, the role of parents, uh, border issues, and so on. I mean, right now, if you look at it, you have to say Republicans are winning the messaging wars. Yeah, I think that that's clear. The other thing I think they're winning is that there have been a number of Republicans who have not bought into a lot of the a lot of the messaging and things, and are, are people who are actually problem solvers in one way or another, but who have left the political stage, and we don't hear from them anymore. And and I think more more than ever, we need that voice as, as representing what used to be the mainstream Republican Party. It doesn't exist anymore, or it doesn't seem to. Yes. Uh, I mean, Trump has completely taken over the Republican Party. So even on some of the typical Republican issues of being tough on national defense, tough on uh, Russia, respecting the uh, rule of law, there are many Republicans who one might have thought would have supported those principles because they have actually supported those ideas uh, for a number of years, are now strangely silent uh, when Trump has basically moved the party in a completely different direction, is soft on Russia, is cozying up uh, to Vladimir Putin, is not respecting uh, the rule of law and uh, constitutional authority. Uh, It is puzzling why some of the Republicans that long have promoted these types of issues uh, now are very uh, quiet. And of course, the answer is they're afraid of Trump. You know, Trump still has a 70 to 80 percent job approval rating among Republicans. Uh, They're worried about getting primaried, having a uh, Trump sycophant uh, uh, contest uh, their uh, primary uh, re-election. And so Trump's popularity among Republicans has basically muzzled many of the other Republicans who otherwise would be speaking out, but they are afraid for their political futures. Do you think that we're losing the sense of separation of power? And, and I'm thinking more of the courts that are, are seem to be becoming more and more politicized than they've ever been before. Yes. Well, certainly at the Supreme Court uh, level, uh, conservatives basically have a 6-3 majority on most issues. Occasionally, uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts does uh, join the more liberal ones. But even in that situation, he loses because uh, then uh, uh, conservatives still can win on a 5-4 uh, ruling. Uh, and you're seeing a lot of Bush and now uh, Trump justices in the federal courts below the Supreme Court basically challenge what has been years of precedence on uh, different issues. Uh, We see it in the abortion area, in the immigration area, some uh, issues related to schools. There's some school prayer uh, cases uh, before the courts right now. And you have lower uh, court uh, judges who are basically overturning precedents that have been placed uh, for a number of uh, decades. And of course, at the end of June, everyone is anticipating uh, the abortion ruling uh, coming down, coming out. And based on the oral arguments before the court, people are expecting uh, Roe versus Wade either to be outright overturned or whittled away to such a point that it's no longer uh, meaningful. And so the courts are taking uh, very strong positions. And I remember 
when conservatives used to complain about liberal judges legislating as opposed to interpreting uh, the Constitution, it seems like there are a lot of Republican-appointed judges who now are legislating and going beyond their legal uh, mandate, and you don't hear Republicans complaining about it. The other thing that I saw, I actually saw something this morning on early morning TV, I, I, um, and I didn't catch it all, but uh, it was an interesting look at Congress and, uh, and, its, and its various uh, roles within a lot of these offices of how we have not, even though we talk about trying to equalize things between being genders, race, all of that, we really haven't done a good job when we, when we get into, uh, into the weeds a little bit in Congress, and we really still have a, a white male majority that is, that is uh, uh, running most of these uh, congressional offices as well as uh, most of the federal offices. Yeah, it has been uh, very difficult to make any meaningful progress on anything related to uh, equity and uh, social uh, justice. We haven't seen, even in a situation where Democrats controlled the House, the Senate, and the presidency, uh, they have not been able to uh, pass meaningful legislation in this area. Increasingly, we're seeing Republicans uh, resort to racial appeals to uh, white uh, people uh, in ways that even 10 and 20 years ago, I would not have imagined uh, being the case, but uh, now uh, they are uh, doing that. So, you know, they've kind of uh, latched on to uh, various uh, cultural issues uh, in the schools, uh, the role that parents play in uh, their children's uh, education to basically inflame uh, some of these issues. And, uh, and actually erode the ability of teachers and professional uh, professors to teach what they think is important. Uh, there used to be academic freedom where uh, people kind of taught the topics that they thought were important. There have been a number of states now that have passed laws basically telling educators they can't talk about the history of racism in America. Uh, that they can't uh, talk about uh, segregation in the ways that uh, they might have wanted to do uh, several uh, years ago. So it's not just some of the immediate issues that are facing the country, but the way that the role of educators is being undermined, uh, the fact that they can't uh, talk about our country's uh, history in uh, ways that would help improve the understanding of young people today, like all those things are highly problematic. Uh, and if you kind of allow that to uh, continue uh, in the coming years. It does not bode well for our country's ability to address any of these issues. Daryl, I want to touch on one last item, money in politics. Uh, Is there any hope ever that we will have any kind of federal campaign reform, uh, campaign dollar reform, if you will? Well, certainly in the immediate future, uh, I'm very pessimistic about our ability to address that. And you're right, that's a very important uh, issue. We do need uh, much uh, tougher uh, rules uh, than uh, what we have uh, now. I mean, for example, Ohio has a a Senate primary uh, tomorrow. Uh, J.D. Vance, who's the Trump-endorsed candidate, got a $10 million contribution from Peter Thiel, uh, a conservative and libertarian uh, billionaire, uh, basically. The idea that one individual could dump $10 million into a Senate primary just seems wrong and incredibly anti-democratic. But yet there have been so many court decisions over the last few decades that have eroded uh, that notion of equity in campaign uh, finance that now it's possible and it's completely legal for Peter uh, Thiel to uh, do that. And you're seeing other billionaires uh, dump uh, large amounts of money into uh, campaigns as well. So 
Again, that's another issue that does not bode well for American democracy. It's highly uh, problematic, but it doesn't look like anytime soon uh, Congress is going to be able to address that issue. Well, and add to that in terms of the influence on Congress by all these uh, all these various groups, the, uh, the pharmaceutical groups, uh, NRA, all of those are in, in a lot of ways casting the kind of legislation that does or does not happen uh, because of the money they pour into these um, into these candidates. Yep, uh, I agree. Uh, yeah, it's not just uh, the billionaires who are active, but certainly the pharmaceutical industry has been very powerful in stopping legislation that would actually improve the health care of nearly every American across the country. Uh, but yet the money and politics angle prevents Congress from taking the steps that need to be taken. Daryl, I'm going to let you go. I want to thank you so much for being with us this morning. And we'll keep in touch. These are important issues. And, uh, you know, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that democracy survives all of this. Thank you very much, uh, Frank. Uh, great talking with you.